Apollo Bion explores how organisms in the living world are really superorganisms formed by a host and all of its communities of microorganisms. To explore these interactions in sickness and in health, I interview researchers at the crossroads of microbiology, evolution, immunology, computational biology, and beyond. So hello, I'm here with Holly Everest. Um, do you want to start by just presenting yourself and telling us about your background? Hi, yeah, sure. Um, I'm Holly. I'm a second year DPhil at Hartford as part of Nuffield Department of Medicine. Um, I'm doing my PhD in basically developing sustainable ways of poultry production and finding like novel prophylactic treatments to combat influenza viruses and also other poultry viruses like um, infectious bronchitis virus, which is a coronavirus in chickens, and Newcastle disease virus, which is an oncogenic virus. Um, I kind of fell into my PhD following my previous job. I was a researcher for the civil service for four or five years, um, working in both coronaviruses and avian influenza viruses, and it kind of just went from there. I'm actually based at the Purbright Institute, which is a veterinary research institute in Surrey. So I split my time between there and Oxford. Um, but the facilities that we have at Purbright to be able to conduct the work is a lot more extensive than Oxford. We've got all the containment facilities where we can work with all the viruses and also just having access to multiple labs for multiple pathogens at the same time. And maybe just to focus on avian influenza virus, could you just maybe remind us what kind of virus it is and what kind of disease it causes in, in birds? Like, is it similar to, to, to humans? Yeah, so in, avian influenza virus is, um, is very interesting in itself. Um, so it's an orthomix of virus and it's classified by, it's called an H subtype and an N subtype. Obviously, hemagglutinin being the H type and neuraminidase being the N type. Both hemagglutinin and neuraminidase are the surface proteins of flu and all the classifications are done off that. Effectively, there's 18 H types and I think 11 N types, but only 16 are commonly found and only nine neuraminidase types are commonly found. The other two viruses are found only in bats, but they there's a lot of questions being thrown around as whether they are actually additional subtypes or whether they're just extreme like variants from other subtypes. Um, with the human flu, obviously, which is more famous than avian flu, and also swine flu, um, you'll find that majority of flu is derived from birds. So pretty much all influenza comes from avian species. And avian influenza is a huge issue, not just to like the commercial poultry industry, obviously, where people have upwards of a million birds in their facilities, but um, also just to like native species in the UK or endangered species. So it's spread through migratory birds. So basically anywhere on that migratory pathway, obviously through like bird droppings or just interactions with other species like flu can be transmitted. So in wild birds, it's often undetected because it doesn't show as a symptomatic infection. It's often asymptomatic, but they're still shedding virus. And a lot of, for example, ducks are basically like the natural host reservoir for flu. So they're pretty predisposed to it. They've got, had a lot of exposure in the past. It's pretty much, it doesn't really affect them. It's only when it goes into like domestic poultry that it becomes a huge issue. And once it goes into domestic poultry, there's the case that it can change like receptor binding preference towards maybe human orientated receptors, which then poses the question whether that can go into humans. And if it goes into humans, then obviously it poses a massive problem.
but like the case fatality ratio for influence in humans is around, I mean, less than 1%. Is that similar in birds? Um, yes, effectively. Um, it depends on the strain. So you've got low pathogenicity avian influenza virus and then high pathogenicity. Low pathogenicity doesn't always kill them. So the mortality rate is considerably lower, but the morbidity rate is really high. Um, influenza viruses, once they've gone into birds, they spread like wildfires. Like you, it's really, really difficult to stop them. And the high pathogenicity ones, by the time you've realised that they've got them, like they start dying. But from the problem is through like a welfare aspect. Um, if birds on an infected premises have flu, you have to cull them. So although they may not have died from the infection, because to stop the spread and to stop the transmission from moving between farms and into like infected meat, you have to cull, um, which is always really sad. But unfortunately, it is pretty much the most effective way of present, um, preventing disease transmission. Um, so, yeah, no one, I wouldn't say anyone particularly knows the like fatality rate because of the ethical response that we have to give. Um, but I'd say it's, it is higher in birds than humans but also at the same time there's far more birds exposed to it than humans would be. Mm -hmm. And what about the state, um, is there like a live attenuated vaccine or effective vaccines that are available for poultry? Yes so there is a number of poultry vaccines that are commercially available. Um, the problem with them is obviously flu, it evades vaccine protection very efficiently um, and obviously because there's so many different subtypes um, protection across subtypes offers like minimal minimal protection even within like you'd normally target like a specific hemagglutinins for example like the big outbreaks at the moment are H5 and um, so a lot of the vaccines are based around this H5 it's got a known history of causing infections in humans um, but then if you're targeting H5 then other strains of interest like 7, 9 it, you can't vaccinate against them so you'd have to multiple vaccinate with multiple different strains, which then becomes very expensive. And it's just trying to find a viable way of doing it. Perbright have spent um, a lot of time doing this, a lot of time. And they're coming up with like recombinant vaccines. So there's um, something called an HVT vector, essentially, which is herpes virus of Turkey, which they use as like a backbone. And then they can tag on like short chain fragment variables of antigens towards specific flu strains um, and then can use those. And um, we've actually just published some data on that, which is looking potentially like it could be a viable alternative to attenuated vaccines. Um, with flu as well, with the vaccines that you get reassortments, you get all sorts of horrible things. So it's, it, is, it is a massive issue and it is something that people are looking into, but it's just, it's so, so difficult to find one because of all the internal genes as well. They just switch between viruses. So targeting everything you need to, to prevent infection, it's actually really difficult, we've learned. Mm -hmm. And at least um, in the experimental models is the correlate of protection antibodies mostly, or do you manage to elicit both uh, cellular and humoral responses? Yeah, um, most of it we do off obviously antigen for seroconversion. So the other thing with flu is it takes about 14 days for the animal to develop antibodies to, or at least detectable antibodies, which is again, half of the problem that it takes so long for them to seroconvert and to have antigen um, that by then, obviously it's spread absolutely everywhere. And it's the same kind of problem that we have 
in testing these vaccines and using them efficiently is it takes such a long time to get this ant like um antibody antibody response that it's just it's not particularly viable and um cellular responses is not something that people routinely look into i know there's a flu a uh, couple of flu groups in london that are looking into this but personally from my experience we only do sort of antibody serological response to vaccines Okay, and then some of your work is also on finding antiviral molecules. Um, would these yes. look more like small molecule inhibitors, kind of like Tamiflu, um, so also Tamivir, or is it another type of compound? Yes, yeah, so antivirals for flu um, are normally quite effective, but there's not many of them. So like you mentioned, Oseltamivir, which is Tamiflu, which is a neuraminidase inhibitor. So they're they're brilliant and it works really really well but um with the flu replication cycle the neuraminidase comes into play as the last step so it will cleave at the last point of the replication cycle allowing for flu to exit so at that point it's already gone through the whole replication cycle so you're hoping that tamiflu works otherwise like it's just going to be huge viruses um there's another one that came out i think when a couple of years ago that's targeting like the matrix proteins the membrane proteins again it's very good but it's very expensive and it's quite specific i've been looking at like alternative sort of treatments so other things that are shown to have like antibacterial responses or i can't name them because i'm under pattern um but like potentially other things that have prophylactic treatments we've looked we've gone down the sort of antibacterial route seeing whether we can adapt anything that's antibacterial to become antiviral um and try and make it a less chemical process and try and utilize things that are like routinely found in farms that we can use as byproducts basically but yeah as you said, if in industrial settings when an outbreak starts it's it's so hard to, to, to stop it. So do we give prophylactic antivirals to, to all animals in, in routine settings, even if there's no detected um, infection? Um, for antivirals, no. Um, anti, like anti-E. coli, anti-Samalella treatments, they give routinely just because that's a problem. And um, I, IBV, infectious bronchitis virus, is hugely um, prevalent in the poultry industry as well. Whereas IBV doesn't usually kill the birds, it makes them very sick, but it makes them very susceptible to secondary infections and co-infections, which is also part of the problem that, again, IBV doesn't have any vaccines. So if the birds were to get IBV, they probably wouldn't die. It would probably go undetected for a while, but then obviously their immune system's absolutely shattered. So they'd be way more susceptible to flu to, and to other poultry viruses. And then that then becomes a huge problem. But again, like the flu vaccine, the IBV vaccines offers little to no cross protection between strains. So there, this is something that the poultry industry are massively looking into is like preventative treatments more than like, like proactive treatments once they're already sick. But there's so many different infections out there that, and there's so many aspects that you need to target. Like it's very, very difficult to do. And that is a big push at the moment. Obviously, there's a huge central poultry hub for research that are looking into every possible way they can do this. But yeah, flu is an app, basically an absolute nightmare to work with. It's fun, but it's, it's very challenging. And can you tell us more about how straightforward it is to classify these viruses into their, their respective lineages and to infer information like um, ancestors or original geographic location? 
Yeah. Um, so the the clade systems um, depend by strain. So the main, the only virus that really has a very well defined like clade system where we can genetically track it back to like a progenitor strain is H5. Um, and I think in 1996-1997 in China in a place called Guangdong, there was a human infection of an H5N1 subtype influenza virus. And then from there, they've used that as like the ancestor, if you like, as the root for the phylogenetics. Um, and everything from there is classified into clades based off its hemagglutinin similarity to that strain. So that's really useful in being able to track like where the viruses have come from, where they've originated, where they've possibly reassorted with other strains. We can then sequence them, look at like different mutational markers and say, oh, okay, like this one's not got any of the one the human has. It's probably not a zoonotic threat. Um, it was very similar to a couple of years ago and it died out fairly quickly or it didn't cause that many outbreaks. Or we look at it and go, oh dear, like it's got everything that the human one's got. We need to pay attention to this, like we need to deal with it. Um, again, H7 is fairly similar system, um, but only H5 and H7 strains of high pathogenicity avian influenza viruses um, are notifiable. They still care about the low pathogenicity ones, um, but that's reportable to like OIE, WHO, FAO, all the big organizing bodies of like avian influenza, human influenza. Whereas the other strains aren't notifiable, there's less research into to them, there's not like a well-defined clade system. So that takes a little bit more of like trying to figure things out, a lot more deep sequencing, trying to trace things that way. Um, that's something that there is a gap. And um, we've highlighted this with a couple of different subtypes. But yeah, having that clade system for the H5 for like the biggest threat viruses is really, really useful because the way that the sequencing is done, it's done on so many viruses. You can literally sequence it, blast the sequence. It'll come up with, like, I don't know, 95% similarity. It sits right within this clade. And you know that that entire clade either is of importance or it's one that's a poultry only or it's only in ducks. It's not adaptable to chickens. So that, yeah, that's a really beneficial tool. And that's something that's maintained globally as well. So everyone constantly updates this. So it's it's really useful tool to have for sure. And so at the molecular level, are the H and N proteins the best determinants of host range and whether it's going to be a potential spillover? Or are there also other regions that you can look at? Yeah, so the HA and the NA are the two that are sequenced most often. They're also ones that you can just do like Sanger sequencing on really quickly, just the spike region, um, or spike region the hemagglutinin regions and just the binding domains and then the NA. Um, however, flu is interesting. It's got because it's got so many internal genes, the polymerase genes play a massive part in like having specific mutational markers that cause human adaptations. For example, PB2 and PB1 um, are, if you look at the internal genes sequences of lots of flu strains, they're all very, very similar. And even the poultry ones will have like human origin PB2, PB1s. So that's something that, again, we look at quite a lot. Um, various groups look at different proteins because as we're learning more and more about them, we're discovering more and more things that come from these specific genes that contribute to like spillover um like a broader host range like broader tropism um but yeah primarily the ha and the na is what all the research and like what the who are interested in from that perspective but from a research perspective the internal genes contribute we think just as much as the surface proteins it's just a case of where do you draw the line for like reporting um so from a 
like a diagnostic point of view it's normally the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase that are of interest and then everything else is just retained all the sequences will be uploaded at the same time um, I think just from a screening perspective, like HA, NA is the one you did look at. Yeah, you, t- you also talk about sharing and data sharing. And I w- was wondering whether open science is quite good in the influenza fields, given that it does have quite a special role in that you can't do epidemiological surveillance alone. And all of these issues are global by nature. So being secretive and not transparent would be counterproductive at the global scale. Do you find that overall the collaboration is quite good? Um, for some things, yes, very. <laughs> for other, not so much. I guess that's the same with any lab. Like if you're trying to publish something, you'd want to get it published before sharing it. Um, but from a like, if there's ever a flu outbreak, um, and anyone that's done any diagnostics of any sort, there's so many like regulations that are in in place that like you do the data, you release the data as quickly as you can as like a warning to everyone else. Um, but chances are, actually, if it's in the UK, it's already worked its way here through, like, from the top of Russia all the way down through Europe to us because um, of continental flyways. Um, but, yeah, there is a huge, huge network of people that work in, like, um, avian influenza, like, diagnostics and epidemiology. So you've got tools all over the world of different people that are um, fantastic at different things. For example, the University of Cambridge and... Um, now the lead on that project has actually moved to RBC do like antigenic mapping of influenza viruses. So that's a fantastic tool that's shared like globally. And we've got projects with people in like Georgia on like where the birds go for the migratory season. So and actually just international networks where every, we know exactly what's coming because people report it so well. If they didn't do that, I think it'd be a much bigger problem than it is. So what does surveillance actually look like in the wild? Like you... I mean, you do RT-PCR on, on birds that you, that you catch or? Yeah, so <laughs> um, there's two types of surveillance. There's active surveillance and there's passive surveillance. So active surveillance, it depends on the country. But in my previous job, I actually worked for APHA as part of their um, avian virology like investigation unit. Um, so essentially, if any birds are found dead, um, they're reported to like park rangers or stuff like that. And then a lot of the time, if it's for example like sometimes birds will fly into like telephone wires or something and it's very obvious that like that's how they've died but if there's any like if it's not obvious um they'll send the carcasses to APHA and they will do post-mortems and they will screen for flu and um if they find anything that's notifiable obviously that's reported anything that's not notifiable they will do their own research and then track it that way um, and then that's normally quite a good marker because if wild birds are found dead with notifiable strains of flu, it got to the point where it's quite serious if it's actually caused harm to the natural reservoir. So then that's when we'd put in place like perimeters, um, restrictions. And then obviously, normally, outbreak cases will start to appear and then we can put in more restrictions. Active surveillance um, is a little bit more challenging. And there's a lot of different places all over the country that do this where essentially once every six months um staff from APHA or like volunteers or vets from that site or whatever will go down there they'll swab the birds and they'll take blood samples and then we'll screen there's normally like maybe a thousand samples or something and we'll screen all of those and we'll do 
hemagglutinin inhib inhibition assays so just to screen the serum samples to see if there's any presence of any antigens and we'll do that with a full h1 to h16 panel um and then also there's yeah, RT-PCR, which will run against, um, we've got PCRs designed for all the different subtypes of interest and we'll screen for those. Normally we start with the notifiable ones and then if there's nothing on those, then we'll move on. Um, we actually have an M-gene PCR, which is developed by Alexander Nagy, it's fantastic PCR, because the M-gene in influenza is so conserved, um, it targets that region. So in theory, if there's any influenza there, it will pick it up. And if it's not picked up on the H5 or the H7, you know it's not notifiable, it doesn't need to be reported, but it's something that they then watch and do like internal like epidemiology on. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes on, um, but again, it's not cheap, it's very expensive, it's very time consuming. And uh, it's actually a credit to DEFRA for the work that they've put into this, because I think if we didn't do all that, again, we'd have a much bigger problem with avian influenza than we do. And I think when it does come here, it is very efficiently dealt with as best as it can be. Like, and also like the farmers that are very open about this when they've got like infected flocks, the reporting that they do. Um, yeah, the UK poultry industry, they do, do deal with it very, very well. Maybe there's a limit to the kind of interventions we can make because if you see suddenly a worrying level of virus circulating and it's in a wild population, isn't, isn't an intervention warranted? Yeah, um, normally, yeah, it's, yeah, I see the point. Um, it's, it is tough because you can see it coming and you know it's going to be here. And it's, it's very difficult if it's in wild birds because you, A, you can't really catch them. Um, and B, like they're always, they're in flocks, but they're not very extensive flocks. There's never that many of them together. Um, and when we normally get any wild bird cases, we do send out alerts saying like, if you've got backyard poultry, keep them under a cover, like make sure that no like wild birds can come into contact with them. If you can move them into indoor facilities, please do that. Um, and it's the same with the commercial units. Again, the same thing, like put down netting so the birds can't mix and um, things like that. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. But again, with the wild birds, it's not a case of you can just cull them because they've flown everywhere. And if you can maybe cull 10, there's going to be like another thousand somewhere that have also got it. Um, there is a lot of warning systems in place and it's a seasonal thing as well. Depending on the subtype, you can pretty much guarantee that it's going to come out at the same point. So for H5, we found over the last few years, it's always in December and normally the first case comes in on our Christmas party which is really annoying when we're all out and we have to get back to work. Um, so that's, that's normally the season. And then a few weeks before that, they'll send out again the annual reminder. And there is um, a lot of reporting schemes in place where you can get your birds tested and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating. You can see it coming and there's literally nothing you can do about it because it just spreads the whole way through Europe and eventually gets here. And it's just a case of when it does get here, being ready to deal with it and like minimising that impact. Right. And then maybe if we look at the past decade or 20 years, does it seem like there's more circulation or more worrying levels of circulation? And is that maybe due to well, the imprint of human activity? Yeah. Um, so you look back 20 years and I think there is a much higher increase in like the number of cases now. But I don't know whether we can attribute that to the fact that there is a higher level of infection or whether just um, the science has progressed so much mm -hmm. that we can test on mass scales, we can test a lot more. Um, and the way that like 
the influenza surveillance has progressed, like whether as well we're detecting more, this, where we can pick up more infections and the way that as well, like even in the last like four or five years that I've worked in this field, I've seen a massive difference in like the way that the outbreaks are handled, like how efficiently. And I think as well, you get, you get more staff in, you can test more. Um, and just as well, like relationships between countries and different research institutes, that takes a while to build. And I think we're at a place now where everyone like is aware of like what's at stake essentially everyone works very efficiently but that's taken a long time to build up to that point um and I was saying that though obviously the first the major flu outbreak was what 1997 so that was what 25 years ago and I think since then like that was a big wake-up call to everybody where they were like oh gosh like this really is like bad and then from that point they put lots of things in place and they've made things notifiable so people are obliged to report it like there's fines if you don't so that incentive to actually report things is there and um, now there's a lot of compensation in place for culling animals so before I think people were maybe more reluctant to report it because obviously it's a loss of livelihood but now um, there's like a compensatory payment if your animals have to be culled due to infection so they have some income still um, I think that's made a massive massive difference but yeah I would say there's actually more infections probably as well like different reassortants coming in all the time um, and the outbreaks are becoming more frequent I think there's been maybe four big ones in the UK in the last five years um, which were contained and um, like I think the UK is actually flu free now or avian flu free um but yeah it's in the last 20 years for sure there's been a lot of changes and i think it's only going to get better as well which is a good place to be in how does the uk compare to other regions of the world because it looks like you know we've had some good policy put in place but maybe that's not the, the case everywhere especially in lower income countries so do we see that the rise is even more pronounced there yeah um yeah this is something that we have looked at um for example South Africa have a very good example of this. Um, they do a lot of poultry farming or like bird farming, but um, a lot of their birds aren't necessarily just domestic poultries in chickens. Um, they have a lot of like emus and ostriches and more, for lack of better wording, exotic species, um, which obviously are more susceptible to different types. So they have actually have an in-place uh, vaccination program for H6 subtype influenza, which isn't it's just prevalent everywhere else, but it doesn't cause like mass outbreaks. So they have very targeted vaccination into like what is most important for them. Obviously they report everything else, but just from where they are located, obviously on the flyways, they're very different. The problem we have in poultry um, is something that's been talked about a lot. And I guess is kind of, kind of relevant with the whole coronavirus outbreak is live bird markets. So live bird markets throughout Asia, um, for example, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Pakistan, China are a huge way that people get an income in that country. Because pretty much you're 80% of people that in those regions that sort of farm will farm some sort of duck, chickens. Um, they're fairly easy to maintain, like they're quite cheap. Um, obviously, it's very easy to do trading with them. Um, but because they're all backyard flocks and things like that, it is basically a breeding ground for infections for flu, um, which is something that there's a lot of outreach that's done there. There's a lot of educating. There's a lot of very good labs in those countries which are doing influenza research now and like 
I would say the situation is improving. Um, but again, it's just when you have that many birds being moved through like markets, but handed between people, like the spread is obviously going to be a lot higher. Um, and also just the size of the countries as well. They're, like, for example, China is absolutely huge. There's so many different regions. So whereas the UK, we might get, I don't know, one strain of influenza um, like coming in and maybe a maximum of two because the country's so small, like realistically you're not going to be able to reassort it that many times whereas China's absolutely massive and the amount of birds that they have there relative to other countries is obviously extremely high um, so there's a lot more reassorting that way and also it just depends on the biosecurity of the country like for example the UK's biosecurity is brilliant like the policies they have in place the restrictions the regulations on everything are massive which makes it very difficult to be able to do things that are full without like outside of those regulations. And obviously like you will be fined. Whereas in other countries that not doesn't necessarily happen. Um, so it, I think it is definitely improving from what it was. And I think actually the coronavirus outbreak will have helped in this way that people will realize that actually biosecurity is hugely important. And like, there are a lot of knock on effects that like, can happen if things go wrong i.e a huge global pandemic which this time happened to be a coronavirus but we are very well know that avian um flu can cross the species barrier it can go into humans there has been pandemics not to necessarily to this scale but like it's something that you can't rule out like it could happen so i think like the way that we look at disease is going to change massively over the next couple of years yeah and in terms of biosecurity just in the lab for example do you have to do um, loss of function experiments rather than gain of function? Yeah, so it depends on depends on the lab. Um, so some of my work, like for, for gene of function um, specifically, obviously there's a lot of regulations with that. Work for like any work that you're doing, genetic modifications has to go through a whole bunch of boards. Like it has to be approved by so many different people because effectively you are making viruses worse, which is always a very dangerous thing to do. So it has to be in a very controlled environment. Um, we've actually just done some work um, that was just published as a preprint, actually, where we've looked at, so H7N9 um, is an avian flu virus. It's a low pathogenicity avian flu virus, but it's gone into people in China. But we looked at the internal genes and it's actually um, from an H9N2 strain. A lot of the genes have come from, which is just in poultry, again, in Asia, in Vietnam, Bangladesh, Pakistan. So we basically made viruses with the H9 internal genes and then put the human markers on the surface to see like what would happen if it reassorted with itself like what genotypes would come out of it how bad would they be and um, so that was a big project that we spent a few years doing and we found that like there are reassortants that potentially have different binding preferences to human receptors and things like that so that's one big part of what groups do but also antigenicity is another thing that a lot of um, and a big part of the group that I work in is looking at like specific motifs on the hemagglutinin like how that can like contribute to like um, cross protective antibodies um, whether these cross protective antibodies work against multiple strains or just strains within a certain clade or across different subtypes but yeah again you have to be very careful and everything that's any gene of function work has to be done in like ACDP3, SAPO4 containment laboratories, like the highest security other than Ebola um, that you can get. And obviously once it's in there, you can't bring it out. So you have to be very clever with how you do your work 
and how you like you release the results because once you're in there that's it <laughs> um, but yeah again here a lot of regulations on that there's there's always a lot of questions surrounding genetic modification and whether it's justified um a lot of ethics boards but again in other countries they don't have those regulations so they potentially could do a lot more gene of function work they could do a lot more antiviral resistance work than we can just because of the like restrictions and regulations we have in place which is sometimes i think a little frustrating for scientists because there's so many things you want to be able to do but like it's not within the regulations that you can do it but also at the same time like it's quite nice to know that they, you have that safety net there, that like you know what you are, what you're not allowed to do. And also that like you've got the protection and you go through all of these boards with some of the world leading experts in this thing. So they will pick holes in everything you want to do and they will give you guidance and like suggestions for work, which I think is really good. Um, and again, it's a lot of um, cross collaboration between different institutes, different um, universities, and as a whole like wealth of experience there. And, a lot, and the research is very targeted. So, yeah, and it, I think it's all quite beneficial. A, like it's not just a case of good publications, which is always nice, um, but the outputs that we get from this, I think actually do very realistically contribute to what we know about like epidemiology and worst case scenarios. So we know what we need to look out for and um, what potentially is an issue. Um, and that's all reported all the way up so everyone's aware of like what could happen, um, which I think is a nice position to be in. So if we see these strains coming, we're like, oh dear, need to, <laughs> need to sort that. And do you yeah. use a, a ferret model to assess whether it could cause um, pathology in humans or what animal model do you use? Yeah, so primarily for the avian flu stuff in the first instance, we'd obviously do everything in vitro, get it to a point where potentially using animal models would be justified. Obviously, through the home office there are a lot of restrictions on this like it has to go through AWERB like the animal welfare and ethics boards um so yeah we'd use chickens in the first instance most likely um which is what a lot of this um sort of gene work we did was in initially and then if we want if it's a sort of a swine strain of interest or something that we know is found routinely in swine obviously we'd then use a pig model because pigs were up until recently regarded as like the best infection model for humans, um, partially through like their sialic acid distributions. They've got a very even split between avian and mammalian receptors. Um, they're known as a mixing vessel. But yeah, ferrets in the last few years have really come up and they are a very good infection model for humans, uh, especially for influenza. There's a few groups that are doing ferret work. Again, with the use of ferrets, there's a whole load of restrictions and a whole load of regulations. Um, and as, as you'll see, like from the SARS work that's going on, like that ferret model's now been adapted for coronaviruses as well. It is it's a very good marker. But um, I think as times evolve, there'll be other models that they'll start using as well. Um, but yeah, mainly for influenza research, chickens, pigs and ferrets are the three mainly used models for infection. Mm -hmm. And then maybe to finish off, what developments in the field are you most looking forward to? Yeah, from, uh, from my perspective, um, obviously I work on antivirals. Um, I think finding, for me, the dream would be finding, not necessarily me, but someone finding like a broad spectrum antiviral that works not just for flu, but for coronaviruses, for some sort of pandemic viruses that you can use like one antiviral for multiple infections. And like that, that antiviral would be 
cheap enough that like low-income countries would have access to it that it was cheap enough to produce that people could just send it everywhere and whereas like I find with Tamiflu it's very effective but it's very expensive it's not particularly accessible I think to have that would be great from like a human perspective but also to have vaccines that worked that worked really well so (laughs) these outbreaks would obviously you're still going to get outbreaks that's always going to happen but the impact would be considerably less than it is now I think would be the ideal situation but it's flu so it's always going to be a pain and if people want to follow up on your research specifically or your fields where do you suggest they go Perbright have done a lovely biography on all of us I think my photo has been taken off because it was horrid um and also I've got um Obviously, I'm on LinkedIn and ResearchGate, so you can, and Google Scholar now. Um, so, yeah, you can see all of our research outputs. There's also links to everyone that works in my group. Um, so, you'll be able to access not only the antivirals work and the coronavirus work, but you'll see like all the vaccine challenge work that we're doing. It's a good group, even um, influenza virus group at Perbright. Yeah. And then also, I obviously have my, as part of my PhD, we have DTP web profiles where you can find like a current publication list and any events that we're all speaking at. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. No problem.